1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, let's talk about music. We have featured a lot of Ohio-based artists like Victor Samalot, Molly Morgan, Whiskey Pilot, and many, many more. If you go to OhioMysteries.com and select Featured Music from the drop-down menu, you can find all of these very talented artists. If you are an artist from Ohio or know someone who is, and you would like to feature your music on our podcast, Send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, with us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. Tonight, part two of our series featuring three of the most pivotal codebreakers of World War II, and they all came from Ohio. Last time, we introduced you to Joe Desch, a civilian working for Dayton's National Cash Register Company, and how he built a system capable of decoding Germany's Enigma cipher machine. He saved tens of thousands of soldiers and sailors from watery graves in the Atlantic, and yet suffered a nervous breakdown from knowing that in doing so, it ended the lives of others. Incredibly, Dayton also produced the chief codebreaker responsible for taking on the Japanese in the Pacific. He was also named Joe, a naval captain, and arguably the man most responsible for America's historic victory in the Battle of Midway, a conflict from which the Imperial Navy never fully recovered. But he committed a mortal sin in the military, In solving the riddle of Midway, he proved an admiral wrong, a slight that derailed his remarkable career. His name was Joe Rochefort, and this is his story. Joseph John Rochefort was born in the year 1900 to Frank and Ellen Rochefort, His father was a Catholic Irish immigrant who moved from Dublin to Ontario, Canada, where he met a nice Catholic girl and they married. They would end up with a big family, seven children in all. The first three were born in Ontario, then the family moved to Dayton, Ohio in 1891. Dayton was an industrial city of 61,000 people back then, fueled by textile mills, a tobacco factory, and many small manufacturers. Frank Rochefort landed a job running a saloon downtown while his family lived above it. Later, he took a job as a department store salesman, bought himself a house, a modest place on South Bainbridge Street, where Frank and Ellen welcomed three more children, including Joseph John. Joe and his younger siblings attended St. Joseph Parish School, walking each day across the railroad tracks and through the open fields to reach it. But Joe wasn't much interested in a parochial education. What really inspired him was just a few miles from their home. The workshops of Orville and Wilbur Wright. When Joe was three years old, the Wright brothers flew their plane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and became instant celebrities. Joe was hooked. He began dreaming of being a pilot himself. He held on to that dream, even as Frank and Ellen decided to move their family to Los Angeles when he was 12. Funny enough, His parents were not happy with this passion of his. They imagined him becoming a priest of all things, which is kind of laughable once you come to know the witty, cigar-smoking, and blunt-talking man he will grow to be. In 1917, the United States joined World War I, declaring war on Germany. Joe longed to help America win the war, imagined himself a flying ace. His brother, Frank, had already enlisted. Joe's high school newspaper was filled with stories about recent graduates and even students who had quit to join the war, talking about their experiences overseas. They were heroes, not to mention they sounded like they were having fun in Europe to boot. Cho couldn't wait any longer in April of 1918, he left school and his girlfriend, Elma Fay, and joined a group of friends on a train ride to San Pedro Bay, where the Navy had a submarine base. There he enlisted. The military rarely questioned birth dates of young men who wanted to fight for their country, and so nobody knew that the year Joe put on his application was wrong. He was three weeks shy of his 18th birthday, so he simply changed the year to 1899. Nine days later, Joe was called up. He reported for duty four weeks before he would have received his high school diploma, but as it were, The war was turning against Germany, and it looked like World War I was winding down. The Navy didn't need new aviators. The Navy did need engineers to run its ships, and Joe could learn. So he began his military with a rating far from what he'd expected, electrician third class. He wasn't going to be content with that, A few months later, he applied to the U.S. Navy's Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. When his fake age wasn't enough to meet the minimum age requirement of 21, he moved the bar once again, and for the rest of his military career, records would reflect a birth year of 1898. Upon graduation from Stevens, he was commissioned an ensign, an almost unheard of leap in rank. Commissioned rank in the Navy was nearly exclusively for graduates of the Naval Academy at Annapolis in Maryland. Being the rare exception, Joe Rochefort was called a Mustang. That was a slang term used for non-Annapolis officers. Joe's first deployment came aboard the oil tanker, USS Kuyama, as a junior officer, and he spent the next seven years on it in various roles. It was during this time that he got his old high school sweetheart to marry him after all. He and Elma Fay soon added a son to their family, Joe Jr. The next life-changing moment for Rochefort came in 1925, A commanding officer noted how Joe had a knack for solving crossword puzzles and that he was uncannily good at contract bridge, a card game that he played with fellow officers all the time. The commander thought maybe there was a better place for that kind of brain power. And in 1925, he recommended Joe for assignment to the Navy's Code and Signal Section, a newly created cryptanalytic organization. It was called OP-20G. I'm going to be using that a lot, so remember OP-20G. Joe was made assistant to the unit's chief, Lawrence Safford. Joe was conflicted about the change, The key to promotions for naval officers was proving themselves at sea, not in an office. But upward mobility came much faster than he expected. Within months, Safford was reassigned to a ship, and Joe Rochefort, at the age of 26, took the reins of OP-20G for the next four years. His time at OP-20G was well spent. He worked with Agnes Meyer Driscoll, a master codebreaker from Ohio, who they called the First Lady of Naval Cryptology. And together, they broke much of the Japanese cipher program. In 1929, Rochefort got a new assignment. He was sent with his family to Japan to study the language and the culture. He spent three years immersed in life in Tokyo. What he learned there was not really made use of for the next ten years, as upon his return, he served aboard several battleships and cruisers in operational capacity. But his day was going to come. In June of 1941, Rochefort was assigned as officer in charge of the Combat Intelligence Unit in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, better known as Station Hypo. At this point, the United States had three code-breaking units, so you had OP-20G, which was the headquarters in Washington, and two smaller stations, including Station Hypo in Hawaii and Station CAST in the Philippines, both of whom reported to OP-20G. The reasons for moving Rochefort to Station Hypo were obvious. The U.S. wasn't involved in World War II yet, but We certainly knew Japan was an increasing threat, and Rochefort had all the touchstones. He was an expert Japanese linguist, an experienced intelligence analyst, and he helped write the book on the Red Code, the secret to the Japanese cipher program. And that's where Rochefort found himself, in Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese made their devastating surprise raid on the U.S. fleet there, causing America to enter World War II. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, Joe and his staff of fewer than 20 cryptanalysts and linguists had one goal, track the Imperial Japanese Navy, or in the words of Joe's personal mantra, tell the fleet commanders today, what the enemy is doing tomorrow. And it wasn't just a job. It was personal for them. There was more than enough guilt to go around for their failure to predict the attack on Pearl Harbor, fueling them to work around the clock. Station Hypo was basically a bunker, a small basement in the bottom of a nondescript building accessed by a narrow dirty staircase. But there Rochefort inspired his people. He was present all hours of the day, even had a sleeping cot brought into his office for those 20-hour shifts that he put in. They liked his personality. He was colorful He started wearing a maroon smoking jacket, some stories called it a bathrobe, and he was often in slippers. He smoked cigars and had a quick wit that endeared him to his men. But those same qualities irked many of his supervisors, some of who still didn't understand how a high school dropout who didn't attend the Naval Academy, indeed had no college background at all was now an officer in charge of intelligence in the Pacific. It probably didn't help that Rochefort himself didn't much care for the chain of command. When new supervisors at OP-20G tried to rein him in by ordering that he give Washington all information first and they would decide what to tell fleet commanders, he simply ignored them, continuing to do just the opposite. He thought having to inform Washington first was bureaucratic bull, and he wouldn't play along. This was going to be his downfall.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: In May of 1942, OP-20G, Station Hypo, and Station CAST all picked up and deciphered a series of messages that Japan had been sending to its fleet. The clues suggested the Imperial Navy was deploying an occupation-sized force in the Central Pacific. But what were they planning to take over, and when? Rochefort thought he knew. Months earlier, he had deciphered a message in which he was confident that the letters AF in Japanese code referred to a somewhat inconsequential island in the Pacific called Midway, an atoll that we had people on, but apparently one that the Japanese thought would make a good jumping-off point for future attacks. When Rochefort picked up these new radio transmissions about the occupation force, he recognized AF and knew it meant Midway. He shared this with Admiral Chester Nimitz, the chief commander in the Pacific. But when the Washington, D.C. brass heard Rochefort's report, they pushed back. Some say they just didn't want Rochefort to be right. They said, there's no evidence the Japanese are coming to Midway. As a matter of fact, it could just as easily be Papua New Guinea or Samoa or Johnson Island. There was no strategic reason for them to want Midway. Why would the Japanese amass such a large force to vanquish a small atoll in the Pacific? That wasn't the only bone of contention. Rochefort had also advised Nimitz that the clues in the radio messages suggested they were coming the first week in June. But the OP-20G supervisors in Washington said, nah, their intelligence said, wherever it was going to happen, it wasn't coming until the middle of the month. Washington and Rochefort battled back and forth until one commander called Joe uncooperative, and insisted he go focus on something else. But Joe refused to back down. One of Rochefort's men then came up with an idea, and Rochefort put it into action. Some say Admiral Nimitz knew and improved of this plan. Other accounts say Washington, D.C. was never informed, which was going to earn Rochefort another black mark. The plan was to fake an emergency on the island. The U.S. base at Midway would send out word that there had been an explosion in the water desalination system, which meant there would only be water enough for two weeks. They sent this message using a U.S. naval code that they knew the Japanese had already captured. They figured If the Japanese were coming to take over Midway and they learned there wasn't enough water, they would need to communicate by radio the need for a new water system to support themselves. Sure enough, the Japanese took the bait. Within hours, they were passing coded messages saying AF, that code that meant Midway was short on water, and to load additional water desalination equipment onto the ships. With that proof in hand, Nimitz agreed with Rochefort on what the target was. Washington, D.C., however, the guy in charge there, by the way, was Admiral Ernest King, who was one of the big shots who absolutely did not like Rochefort, finally agreed on Midway but continued to side with other codebreakers who said it was coming mid-June. So Joe and Station Hypo went back to work. They made an all-out effort to unravel more of the Japanese cipher. They had been decrypting and analyzing up to 140 Japanese radio messages every day, looking for clues. They increased that to 1,000 messages a day, and nobody was sleeping and soon they uncovered an intercepted communication with orders for two destroyer groups escorting the invasion transports to be at the rendezvous on June 4 or 5. It was finally enough to convince the one man who had the final say, Admiral Nimitz. This revelation was a brilliant advantage. Not only could the U.S. now be in a position to defend Midway, they could go on the offensive, surprise the Japanese armada before they even got there. And they did just that. The Battle of Midway took place June 4 through 7, 1942, six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. When the smoke cleared, the U.S. had lost two ships, 150 planes, and 307 men. The Japanese lost eight ships, 248 aircraft, and more than 3,000 men. It was the first Allied victory against the Japanese and a turning point in the Pacific front because it permanently weakened the Imperial Navy. After the battle was won, Admiral Nimitz recognized it could never have succeeded without Joe Rochefort, and he recommended him for the second highest award in the Navy, the Distinguished Service Medal. It wasn't just that Joe and his team had successfully decoded the key intelligence, but the fact that he wouldn't back down, that when superiors were fighting him and he knew he was in the right, he still managed to win the trust of his operational commander and the backing of his men. Rochefort was a man who knew his trade, and he knew his adversary, and he was Unrelenting in making that clear in face of every bureaucratic obstacle. But Rochefort had too many enemies among the brass. In Washington, D.C., Admiral King, a tough and ill tempered man, rejected the application. He said Rochefort didn't deserve it, and that because he wasn't involved in actual combat, he didn't even qualify. And it got worse from there. Four months after Midway, Rochefort was relieved of his post, told he was failing as a leader and that Hypo had become a weak station headed by a former Japanese language student. And then Joe was sent to a proverbial backwater. He was ordered to supervise the building of a dry dock in San Francisco Bay. He never again worked on a Japanese code. History has sometimes portrayed Rochefort the way Admiral King and the OP-20G commander saw him. In the Hollywood blockbuster Midway, he was portrayed by actor Hal Holbrook as a clown, an eccentric, sloppily dressed officer with a folksy twang. But those who served with Rochefort said he wasn't that way at all. The man they knew was tall, slender, even aristocratic. Yes, he had quirks, could be irreverent and blunt, but most of it stemmed from his hatred of stuffed shirts, specifically superior officers that he didn't think belonged in their office. The analysts and Navy officers and math wizards who worked for him liked the way he stepped on toes. Admiral Nimitz tried objecting to the reassignment of Rochefort, but it did no good. He belonged to OP-20G, and the power was with them. Now, Rochefort did end his military career on a high note. He was promoted to captain later, and actually assigned to Washington to work in a subdivision of OP-20G that was responsible for analyzing long-range studies of Japan's nuclear capabilities. He retired from that in 1947. But his role at Midway, as critical as it was, was kept secret for decades. After he died on July 20, 1976, someone was asked why he had been denied that Distinguished Service Medal. Someone responded that Joe had committed one unforgivable sin. He had proven a superior officer to be wrong. Rochefort's story doesn't end there, however, because soon after his death, those who knew the truth of what happened began campaigning for him to get that award Posthumously. Many testified to the act being a personal vendetta by Admiral King, an embarrassment by the top commanders at OP 20G. Finally, in 1986, in a White House ceremony, President Ronald Reagan gave Rochefort the medal he should have gotten more than 40 years earlier, handing it to two of his surviving children. A year later, Rochefort was also posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And today, there is a Captain Joseph Rochefort building at the National Security Administration Facility in Pearl Harbor. Now credit to much of the research in this story is owed to author Elliot Carlson, who wrote the book, Joe Rochefort's War, the Odyssey of the Codebreaker, who outwitted Yamamoto at Midway. I told you at the start of this episode that we had three famous Codebreakers to tell you about. Seriously, I've got to wonder how much longer World War II might have lasted. How many more lives would have been lost if it weren't for Ohio's sons and daughters? And I say daughters because the third codebreaker in this series is that Agnes Meyer Driscoll, a woman who came to be known as Madame X. Come join us next time for her story.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours... Head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello, everyone.